Greetings to you again. Thank you for being here. We're very grateful that you are here. Uh, a, uh, a special warm welcome to those of you for whom this is uh, just your first or second or maybe third Sunday back uh, after a season of uh, participating in our worship through uh, live stream. Uh, a special welcome to you. Thank you. Uh, we do uh, want you to feel safe uh, here. We want you to feel comfortable. Uh, as you saw on our church website, we will uh, continue to have two uh, worship services uh, into the new year. Uh, we'll move both of those services uh, to the morning, as you, as you know, but uh, we'll continue for quite some time trying to uh, keep a socially distanced worship service. But uh, a special welcome to all. Let me uh, welcome our little theologians. Thank you for uh, being here. This is a very busy Sunday, a communion Sunday, but uh, as you're listening to me preach, I'd like for you to uh, draw a picture uh, of a line. Uh, in my mind, I was thinking of people standing out front of uh, stores uh, the day after Thanksgiving looking for that great bargain uh, for a Christmas gift or for themselves, perhaps. But I'd like for you to draw a long line of people you're going to see in this passage uh, a great crowd coming to Jesus. And then in the worship service later, you're going to see us uh, stand in lines on these side aisles as we come to partake uh, at the Lord's table. Thank you, little theologians, for being here. Our passage is from Mark chapter 4, and we'll look this morning at the first 12 uh, verses. But if you would please join me in prayer before the reading of God's word. Our Holy Father, each time we gather, we thank you for making yourself known. This is a passage in which you say that you uh, make your uh, secrets, your mystery uh, known. You make your gospel known to us. And so we pray, as this passage commands us, that you would uh, make us good listeners. Not just this morning, but even as we go into this week, carrying your word with us, make us good listeners. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage is in Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching the many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is the word of our Lord. 
I want to begin with a little bit of an indictment to all of us. There's a scholar in Wheaton College named Lee Riken, and he writes on the Bible as literature. And one of his complaints is that we very often, well, we don't sit and read God's word using our imagination. According to Dr. Riken, we make some assumptions about Scripture. That Scripture is more about doctrine. It's more about telling us something rather than showing us something. And to Dr. Riken, he wants to remind us that Scripture is rather concrete. It's not abstract. And that Scripture shows more than it tells. That really Scripture has far more human experience than it does just doctrine. According to Dr. Riken, again, he says that Scripture is uh, embodiment of experience more than collection of ideas. Scripture is embodiment, hear that, an embodiment of experience. God is showing us His will. And uh, Again, this is uh, Dr. Riken. He says Scripture is more about incarnation, God coming forth, than uh, Scripture is about mm, what you might say a theological treatise might be like. Scripture is actually, well, it's human experience embodied. And for that reason, and a few others, he says we need to cultivate the art of listening better to Scripture. And in fact, we've been doing that in Mark's Gospel. I have been doing that for certain as I'm preparing these sermons. There are things that I'm noticing about Mark that I didn't notice before. Uh, Again, uh, Dr. Riken would say that you can find in Scripture evidence of skill and craftsmanship employed by the writer, and we see that in Mark's Gospel. I'm seeing this more and more, how Mark crafts the scenes uh, from uh, Jesus' life. And all of this means that we need to employ our imagination. You'll see the title of the sermon is to let it sink in. This passage is rather unique, not because it's a parable. It's a parable, but it's a parable that Jesus tells not once, but twice. We're going to read the parable here, and then next week we're going to read the explanation of the parable. The disciples and others gather around Jesus, and they ask him to explain the parable. And then the explanation follows. But what we're doing this morning is we're looking at the first telling of this parable without the explanation. And I'm asking you to let it sink in, to hear this parable as best you can as the original audience would have heard this parable. This parable, I think, tells us this. It tells us that the message of Jesus Christ is a new offer of promise. The message of Jesus Christ is a new offer of promise. That's one thing that this parable teaches. But not only that, this parable teaches that this message of Jesus that's a new offer of promise is a message that we desperately, desperately need. So listen. Pay attention. And I'm asking you this morning to do that in advance of the explanation of the parable. And I think you might be surprised at what you're able to glean and I think this is true even for those uh, who have, uh, are just learning about this parable for the first time this morning. I, I think that hearing this parable and then taking a week to let it simmer, to soak in it before the explanation next week, I think even if you've never heard this parable until this morning, that can actually be very helpful to you. 
And, and real quickly, uh, the sermon is just, going, is just outlined according to uh, imagining what the hearers of this parable were like before they came. Why are they coming to hear? And then uh, the experience of these hearers as, they're, uh, as Jesus is uh, telling the parable. And then the experience of the hearers right after Jesus tells the parable. And then the experience of these hearers as they have some time to take reflection, to uh, contemplate what Jesus has said. So there you have it. Just before the parable, during the parable, immediately following the parable. And then what are they, what are they soaking on after this parable uh, has been told them? Well, what do they know before Jesus speaks? I think this is pretty easy, actually. They know a few things about Jesus. That's why they're there. They know that Jesus is able to do mighty things. If you look in Mark 3, verse 8, they heard all that what Jesus was doing. And, and, and especially they've heard about Jesus' uh, ministry of healing. He makes diseases go away. Uh, all you had to do is simply touch him, Mark 3, verse 10. And not only this, uh, Jesus, he has this remarkable power that if you're possessed by an unclean spirit, a wicked angel has taken over you, uh, Jesus, he has the power merely by his presence to scare those wicked angels away. That's Mark 3, verse 11. Well, before Jesus even says a word of this parable, there are people there who are there for that very reason. They've heard about some amazing things. And in fact, we ought to assume that some of the people that are there in that crowd, they're there for the reason of needing that work of Jesus. They need the healing power of Jesus. They need him to scare away wicked spirits in them. Some of the people in the audience are actually there because they've not only heard, but they have a great need for what it is that they've heard Jesus can do. Everyone who's there, they know that this man is different. Rabbis, they're a dime a dozen. Teachers come around all the time drawing disciples to them. But this is a, this is a great crowd. And they're there because, well, this, this guy, he's different. They've most likely heard a thing or two about John the Baptist, the preparation of the public ministry of Jesus. They've most likely heard a thing or two about the, the controversy. Mark has just told us that there's rising opposition to this man who is teaching and doing these amazing things. There's so much evidence for why someone should be there that, in fact, the people who are there who are merely curious, I bet, are a minority. The people who are there just because they're a little bit curious that's probably a minority. This great crowd, they're people who actually want to be there. They're expecting something from this Jesus. And uh, when they uh, got there, in Galilee of all places, when they, when they got there to hear him, uh, one of the things that would stand out to them is they would show up and they'd look around and they would say, I guess I'm not alone. I guess I'm not alone. I thought it was just me and a few people in my village. But as they come and as they see Jesus, they see the crowds and they know they're not alone. And as they look at the crowd, it wouldn't take them long to put two and two together and, and to see that the crowd's pretty diverse. There's Galileans and Judeans. There's people here from Jerusalem, people from Idumea, people from beyond the Jordan, people from around Tyre and Sidon. Hasn't Mark told us that that's where these individuals are from? And if you're showing up, and you're there to see Jesus for, for whatever reason it is, you might be surprised that there's so many other people. I thought maybe I was the only one. And in fact, you might look around and think that there are people there for the same reason that you're there. You're there for healing. And they're here for healing. But there's just one guy. 
There's just one. And it may be that when you show up, you're motivated to be there, you're more than just curious, but at the same time, you have a bit of a competitive spirit about you. Now, it looks like it may be harder than you thought to get close to this guy and touch him. Not only this, what has Jesus done? He's climbed into a boat, pushed himself away from land. I wonder if the competitive juices would get going. And then Jesus begins to speak. Now, let's transition. What about when Jesus is speaking, those individuals who have come for those reasons I've stated, when Jesus begins to speak, what are they thinking? Very generally, they would be thinking this. I want action, not talk. Did you think about that? If they're there for healing, if they're there because they've heard mighty things that he's done, if they're there because uh, the rumors of this man spread all over the place, and Jesus, he puts himself in a boat, pushes back from the land, and he stands uh, presumably on the prow of the boat, and he starts to teach, there has to be some sense in which you'd think, wait a minute, I've come to touch the man. He does amazing things. Not only is he not touching me, he's not touching anyone. He's speaking. I came for action not talk. And then he begins to speak. And you're standing and you're listening to Jesus speak. And the introduction of what Jesus uh, says is arresting. He says in verse 3, listen. It's a command word. Listen. And then a second command word. There's going to be a third. The second is behold. Pay attention to me. One wonders if Jesus had to say that. Because he could see in their eyes that they're disappointed that he's not walking about the crowd healing everyone that he touches. And then as you're standing there, listening to Jesus, you realize that what Jesus is saying is a parable. And I think you realize this pretty early. He says in verse 3, a sower went out to sow. Well, everyone would understand agricultural imagery, to be sure. I mean, everyone would. You don't have to be a farmer. But they're standing on a They're staying on the beach, not where you plant stuff. And Jesus, he's in a boat. That's not where you plant stuff. And Jesus, he begins, a sower went out to sow. And immediately, you have to switch gears. Something is up here. Oh, you might be thinking this guy's a little bit, well, a little bit crazy. But Jesus, he begins to teach, and you, and you feel that it's a parable. And then over the next few seconds, the parable, it's going to take shape. Actually, uh, right before your eyes, or really before your ears, it's going to take shape. Now, you need to keep in mind, when I come to preach to you, I normally bring about 2,000 words. And, and I speak uh, at about uh, 120 words per minute, uh, or a bit less. I know, it's probably odd that I would know that about myself. But think about this. This parable is 105 words in the Greek. It's very short, like two minutes short, really, and that's, that's for a slow speaker. And they're listening second after second after second as Jesus unfolds this parable. And they're, they're listening to patterns because they can't help it. There's something about a sower, someone who just keeps, you know, doing this you know, throwing out seeds. And, and there's something about planting on four kinds of kind of uh, unexpected surfaces in a way, uh, surfaces, the three surfaces that are unexpected, a path and rocks and thorns. That's, well, that's odd. And then the one thing that they would expect is they would expect at some point this guy is going to get the point, this sower, and he's going he's to plant on good soil. And certainly that happens at the very end. 
three things that he shouldn't be throwing a seed on, and the fourth he actually does, and it's like, aha, yeah, I, I totally saw that coming. That's what he should, should have done at the very, very beginning. I don't know why he didn't, but that's what he should have done at the very beginning. However, Jesus says that he does that. He plants on good soil. But he also, at the very end of the parable, offers an over-the-top surprise. In verse 8, the seeds, they produce fruit. Yes, of course, they're on good soil. That took a while. But they produce fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Now, that's a surprise. He mentions a figure three times. The first figure itself is absolutely impossible. 30-fold is impossible. He does it three times. That's a symbol, do you know, of completeness, of fulfillment, of perfection. And then right at the very, very end, really the parable is over. In verse 9, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Have you gone back in time with me? Have you sensed a few of the things that the immediate audience would be hearing as Jesus is teaching? Do you remember how they started? They started with a fence. He's supposed to be healing me, and he gets far from me, and he is teaching me instead. And he alerts me to hear something, and yet all he does is he tells me a parable. And I think I got the point of the parable. I get it. It kind of escalates in something super exciting, fireworks at the very end. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear again. I just listened to this. Why are you telling me to hear again? All of that I want, I want to kind of jumble in your head for a bit, but let me go on. What about right after Jesus finishes with this parable? They're going to perhaps walk away from the setting, but as they're walking away from the setting... We, we don't actually know that. We don't know how long they're there. But Jesus has, has taught this parable, and as, as they uh, walk away, whether it's immediately or, or, or a few minutes after, um, they're still thinking about it, aren't they? What would they be thinking about? What would, what would stand out to you if you heard that parable? I'm telling you, Dr. Riken is right. We need to read Scripture with a good sense of our imagination. What would you be thinking about walking away from this parable? To be sure you've walked a great distance just to be there, expecting something to happen. This is missing the mark just a bit, I would think. But as you're walking away, I think what would stand out to you is that this Jesus, he's pretty intense. Three command words to listen, hear, pay attention, behold. I would think about that. I would also think about that farmer who's sowing. I think uh, there's something a little unprofessional about that kind of sowing. That's pretty wasteful. Seed is very expensive. He seems to be casting it about. In fact, Jesus says he lets it fall. Let's it fall. You don't let, you don't let seed fall. You point it, put it exactly in the furrow. So I might be thinking something like that. You might be thinking something like that as you walk away. You might also be thinking about the vocabulary that Jesus uses uh, with regards to the life cycle of plants. That, that plant uh, on the path, what happens to the seed? I mean, the plant has nothing, doesn't even have a chance to grow. The seed actually gets devoured. Jesus says devoured. It's a graphic word. And then on the rocky ground, it doesn't just grow up and get a little wilty in the sun. It's scorched by the sun. And then on thorny ground, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, just get limited by the thorns. It's actually choked by the thorns. And it might be something about that graphic language that would stick in your head. And Jesus, he's really intense, wants me to listen. The sower is pretty unprofessional. The language is quite graphic. But that ending, the results are just totally unexpected. No plant in the history of agriculture, and it doesn't take a farmer to know this, can yield 30 times. It just can't happen. 
Well, there you have it. Right after the parable, uh, I think that Jesus, uh, they would think that Jesus is pretty serious, um, but they also might think that there's a little bit of sadness about this parable. Do you, know, do you know why? If there's going to be that great bounty of fruit, well, the likelihood is only about 25%. This, this is from someone, by the way, who doesn't care for numbers at all. But someone has to reckon that, wow, of the soils, there's four of them, and three of them really bad things happen. But that fourth, a really fantastic thing happens. Eh, that's just 25% of the time. There, there ought to be something about, uh, about that notion going through the minds of individuals as they leave the parable. Are you with me? But with some reflection... With some reflection, they might be thinking a little bit differently about this parable. You see, there's some obvious things that we know about this scene. These people, they came for a reason. They came because they needed something. Maybe they needed healing. Maybe they needed exorcism. Maybe they needed confirmation. Maybe they actually needed some kind of hope. But they came, and they came to hear something or to experience something. And Jesus, here he is, he's commanded them at the beginning to listen and at the very end to listen. And he doesn't seem to have done anything else, but his, design, his parable has done a few things to me. The parable has made me strangely excited for that fruitfulness and that bounty at the very end. This promise of 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Jesus seemed really serious about it that it could actually happen. And if something like that were to happen, well, that's pretty special. That's a kind of restoration. That's a kind of turn of events that is utterly unexpected. But just think about that. If every seed, if every seed could do that, there would be no such thing as hunger in the world. And these people lived with hunger very close by. And as they think about this parable, not the same day, three, four days later, there's something about that fruitfulness, that completeness, that restoration that they would, in a strange way, yearn for. There's something uh, odd about the yearning that they would have for the seed that does that. And in their minds, again, a week after, in their minds they would think, boy, the birds and the rocks and the thorns and the sun, those are, those are enemies, they can do bad things. There might be a, some kind of yearning for the fruitfulness. There might be some kind of yearning for the survival of that seed amidst such threats as birds, rocks, thorns, and sun. And in an odd way, they may even have a kind of yearning for a sower who is very persistent, someone who keeps at it. Keep going, keep going. It's only 25% of the time it's going to hit good soil, but would you please keep going? Because this is remarkable. Now, I've asked you to imagine some things that they might yearn for the next week as they think about this parable. Do you know why Jesus uses parables in his teaching? Mark actually takes a pause here to tell us. Jesus uses parables to show us our blind spots. And Mark uses, Jesus uses an example from Isaiah chapter 6. You heard that passage this morning. You see, Isaiah was called to ministry in chapter 6. Did you know that? He was actually called to ministry in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, he is uh, standing before the throne of the Lord, and the angels are praising the Lord. The foundations shake, and the house is filled with smoke, and Isaiah is terrified. You know why he's terrified? Not because of any of that, 
He's terrified because of his own unholiness. Woe is me, for I'm lost, a man of unclean lips. And he's terrorized by his own unholiness. And yet the Lord, or actually the angels of the Lord, uh, take a burning coal from the altar of sacrifice and touch his lips. And he's atoned for. All of his sins are atoned for. And then this atoned man, Isaiah, is sent by the Lord to proclaim. And he's sent to proclaim uh, the message of the gospel, but he's sent to proclaim an aspect of the message of the gospel, to reveal a people's own stubbornness. Isaiah, newly atoned, would you go out into the world and would you tell my people something that they need to hear but they're not going to want to hear? Would you go out into the world and would you tell them that they are hearing but they're not understanding? Would you tell them that they're seeing but they're not perceiving? Would you tell them that their hearts are dull, their ears are heavy, their eyes are blind? Would you tell them, Isaiah, all of this, and especially this, that they have me ever before them, and yet they refuse to turn and be healed. Ever before them they have me, and they refuse to turn and be healed. Tell them that, Isaiah. Let them know what they're doing. That's some preaching ministry, isn't it? But you know it's the gospel, don't you? You know that Paul does this in the beginning of Romans. Paul says, God has made himself known. He has been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. Paul says that as he proclaims the gospel. My God is making himself known. He doesn't wish to be obscure. He is a revealing God and he makes himself known. But you, you became futile in your thinking, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Darkened your foolish hearts, claimed to be wise, exchanged the glory of God for mere trinkets. You've done all of this rather than listen to my mighty, glorious message of the gospel. You've traded the truth about God for a lie. You've given up natural sexual relationships for homosexual relationships. You've refused to acknowledge God, and you've given yourself over to do things which ought not be done, and you've given others permission to do those same things. This is the beginning of the gospel message. We need to know this about ourselves if we're going to repent and believe. And God is a God who makes himself known, and the evidence of that is in verse 11, right in front of you. To you have been given the secret, the mystery of God. It's perhaps hard to hear because it says awful truths about us, but it's here. Listen, listen, even though you may not want to hear it. Listen is exactly how the parable begins. Well, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's how the parable ends. But these things, they're rather difficult to hear. You know, there's an odd connection in this parable. Again, I think it might take a week after you've heard the parable for this to uh, be jogged into your mind. And I think it might, might be helped by someone who can understand it to you, someone who knows a little bit about the Old Testament. In Isaiah 28, we find a passage that's very similar to this parable. It's about a sower, but it's about a sower who is textbook good. This is Isaiah 28, 23 through 29. That passage opens, give ear, hear my voice, give attention, hear my speech. And it's Isaiah again. And he's talking about a sower who is perfect. 
He breaks up the ground. He harrows it. He levels the ground. He puts the, he uh, divides the ground into neat little rows. And then he takes the seed and he's very careful about the seeds. He puts the seeds only in the rows and he harvests only the good fruit and then he turns it into bread. It's textbook sowing. And the passage in Isaiah 28, it's about God's judgment and his restoration. God, he knows when to harrow the ground. He knows when to judge you, to break you up, to punish you, to put ridges in you. He knows when to judge. He's a good sower, but he's a powerful sower. And he also knows where to throw the seed. He'll stop throwing the seed at you. He's only going to throw the seed at the ground that he's prepared for it. This is a passage about a a sower that is so perfect that God has this intense indignation for those who refuse to listen to him. Ephraim, Judah, Jerusalem. He's angry. Well, now wait a minute. Listen to this parable. This parable is not a sower who's quite like that. The parable, uh, or the, the sower in Isaiah 28, is a sower uh, who is angry about those who refuse to uh, receive the offer of God's grace and his mercy. And this God is, has a right to be angry. In the past, using his own people as an example, God punished sin on the spot. But return to the parable. What's God doing now? Well, now, he's a sower who, well, sows differently. His word is scattered broadly. The seed, it goes far, even into dangerous places, places that look as though uh, they would present no hope for the growth of that seed. Yet this is what the sower does, scatters it broadly. And the promise is richly significant. The promise at the end is a promise of uh, utter peace and contentedness like nothing you have ever seen, a fruitfulness that is just beyond imagination. The sower, he's doing that. He's creating that opportunity as he casts the seed. And you and I, listeners of this parable, listeners of a parable of a sower like this, were invited to yearn for the survival of the seed, to root for the survival of the seed. Oh, that the seed would actually survive. And we're yearning for a sower who keeps at it. Keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Be persistent, sower, would you please? Because if the seed doesn't make it, And if the sower doesn't keep uh, casting it broadly, well, we're never going to see the promise. We're never going to see that fruitfulness. And not only this, as we hear this parable of a persistent sower who cast far and wide and of a great hope that is beyond our imagination, not only this, we are actually invited by Jesus himself to ask questions of him about this parable. We yearn for the seed. We yearn for the persistence of the sower. We yearn for that great promise at the very end of the, at the, end of the parable that it might benefit us. We yearn for those things, but even as we don't understand how they come about, Verse 10, when Jesus was alone, those around him with the twelve, it's not just the twelve, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he's there to answer. Now I'm asking you to think about this parable over the course of this week. And I'm asking you to yearn for the success of the seed and to yearn for the persistence of the sower and to yearn for that promise that it's unlike anything you've ever seen. But Jesus, he is the one who offers that message, and he is the one who brings that message to fruition. 
Because the message of Jesus is a new offer of promise, and it's a promise that we desperately, so desperately need. So this week, would you listen to this parable? We'll visit it again next week. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who makes himself known. You preach to us a gospel. You offer to us a promise that we would never, ever uh, concoct for ourselves. And that promise comes to us in your word as preached by Jesus. Father, would you remind remind us of our desperate need for this great promise? And would you help us by your spirit to listen? In Jesus' name and for his name's sake, amen.